just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mail with the Opus 111 Group. It's 9 o'clock Saturday morning, and we're here to talk with you on money management about the markets, the economy, and to give you some insights into what all transpired this previous week and hopefully give you some guidance as to how perhaps you can benefit from what's going on out there. So yesterday, uh, we had a pretty good market. Uh, I think uh, the two... S&P and the NASDAQ were up for the week. The Dow was probably flat for the week, but generally speaking, pretty good overall. The Dow closed uh, Friday up 76 points at 32,803. S&P ended at 4145. The NASDAQ traded last at 12,657. The Russell 2000 up at 1921. Gold uh, settled at 1791 an ounce. Silver at $19.83 an ounce. Crude uh, lower again at $89.01 a barrel. The 10-year Treasury bid at 2.82% and soft white wheat bid at 9.10 a bushel. This past Wednesday, the S&P was at its highest level in two months. The Dow, I think, hit its highest point in a couple months on Thursday. So uh, the S&P now up 13% off uh, where it was in mid-June. Now next Coming up Wednesday, we've got the uh, Consumer Price Index report uh, talking to us about inflation at our level. Uh, hope we get some improvement at that point. Uh, inflation, is, <laughs> they say it's like kryptonite for stocks, so we don't want to have any more kryptonite. Now, oil prices were up just a tad on Friday, but uh, they were off their lowest level since February. you got a combination of quote-unquote concerned about supply shortages as well as uh, expected demands and fuel, excuse me, expected declines in fuel demand um, as the economy slows down. Now, that, of course, assumes it slows down. But in any case, uh, not that long ago, it was $120 a barrel and uh, yesterday, $89. So that that trend is our friend for sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, in the economy, uh, we had some rather... Interesting news in a good way. Uh, first of all, uh, mortgage rates are now at their lowest level since April. Uh, the average rate on a 30-year fixed uh, moved down to 4.99%. That's down from 5.3% a week ago. That's from Freddie Mac. And uh, and though they're up above their levels, the mortgage rates are up above their levels from a year ago, they're off their 13-year high of 5.8, which was, again, just in June. So... <laughs> the jobs report came out yesterday, as you may have read. Uh, certainly no sign of anything resembling a recession in the labor market. It's just the opposite. Job market very strong. Uh, as the economist uh, Michael Gappin at uh, Bank America said, quote, the report throws cold water on a significant cooling in labor demand, but it's a good sign for the broader U.S. economy and worker, unquote. The growth in jobs was expected to slow down as the Fed's hiking interest rates to uh, get inflation under control, but it shows that the labor market's still running pretty dang hot. Um, 
And it's it, this report, uh, I think, is particularly important because it's one of two that the feds will see before they decide how much to actually raise rates at its September meeting. They don't have one in August, so we'll have to wait and see what happens in September. Now, the official number uh, reported for job growth in July was 528,000 folks. Now, they were only expecting something like 258,000, so... <laughs> I don't know how these guys miss these numbers so badly, but regardless, we did add 528. And so we are now back. We have gotten back all the jobs that we've lost since the pandemic. Now, that's pretty significant. Now, the unemployment rate nationally had dropped to 3.5%. That's a 50-year low. And the last time it was around this level was right before the bug showed up in 2020. This number is according to the Labor Department. And the Labor Department also said private sector payrolls are now higher than the February 2020 level. So hooray for our team. Now, one of the challenges is that employers, in many cases, haven't been able to find nearly enough employees. Uh, Now, some of that's a combination of folks wanting to work. Some of them are, you know, don't meet qualifications, what have you. But there's still more jobs available than there are folks looking at this point. So it likely means that the Fed is going to keep raising short-term interest rates and probably do so more than the markets are currently planning. But eventually the Fed needs to get tight to bring down the inflation, and uh, if they lag too much, uh, that tightness can cause a recession. But recession has not started already, and unlikely, I think, uh, very much unlikely to start this year. Now, the manufacturing report came out this week. Showing uh, manufacturing in the U.S. expanded for the 26th straight month. That's not bad. Uh, 11 of 18 uh, industries reporting growth. The service sector also up more than expected, uh, actually by a lot. Um, and with if you look at all the points uh, within the um, report itself, uh, it, again, combats concerns that the economy is either in or on the edge of a recession. And... Uh, it looks as if the service sector is going to lead the economy higher this year because consumers are continuing to shift their spending away from goods, uh, which was the big focus during the lockdowns, and toward uh, the still recovering, reopening service sector. So the data on the uh, consumer spending shows that the actual amount of goods being purchased has been falling since early 21, but when you adjust for inflation, adjusting on the spending, it's uh, continuing to expand at a healthy pace, and so that's good. The unemployment rate, again, back to its pre-pandemic level, low, <clears throat> excuse me, lowest since 1969. And uh, let's see, I think uh, I read uh, somewhere that a title, Recession Light, uh, seems like an apt descriptor for what's going on right now because a lot of the ingredients of what would be considered a uh, traditional, true, painful recession, they're not here. you got jobs growing arithmetically almost. We've, we've been averaging about 400,000 jobs added back so far every month this year. Job losses are low. Job openings continue at way high levels. Industrial production up. Capital spending up. So that uh, means that their, the companies are investing in things for growth going forward. That's always a good thing. And the volume of world trade at a new high. 
we've got the market continuing to recover and the bug is old news. So there you go. Now we do know we've had 12 recessions since World War II and we're batting 1,000% on recovery subsequent to those things. And the economy has grown stronger coming out of each recession every time. So this is not a time to get depressed and get under a rock. Uh, it's perhaps more appropriate to sharpen your pencil and go bargain hunting for opportunities that show up. Remember, buy low is a really a good idea. And, you know, falling interest rates uh, could put more downward pressure on the U.S. dollar. The 10-year yield is down to 2.82% from 3.5% last month. That's a significant drop. And the Fed's been hiking short-term rates. That's meant to cool down demand and inflation. And uh, again, lowering the yield on long-term debt. So we're now just uh, about eight-tenths of a percentage point higher than the 10-year German Bund, which has made the dollar less attractive to own. Now, why is the euro weakened? <laughs> it's because Germany faces an energy crisis. Like, I'm glad we're not in that boat, that's for sure. Um, one megawatt hour of electricity in Germany used to cost... 40 to 50 euros, more or less. Now it's 250 euros. That's just for electricity. You know, yeah, the economy based on export isn't going to be competitive anymore, and that's the reality of this situation. You know, uh, economists have theories about what the economy should do, but a pandemic, a war, supply interruptions, that's, the, again, widening the gap between the reality and people's experiences. You know, you know, the vibes in the economy are, I think, just weird. Uh, and the weirdness has real effects, too. A recent study found that these sort of broader vibes do indeed drive what people do. Media narratives about the economy account for 42% of the fall in consumer sentiment in the second half of 2021. I mean, that's one of those truths you hold to be self-evident. If all you're getting is negative news, what do you think? You know, some people think higher inflation and the rising rates are going to lead to a system resetting crash. I guess they're thinking that the investors need to suffer some more to pay for the sins of the blow-off top. I don't know that that logic escapes me. But nonetheless, others think the Fed has already done enough to cool inflation. The effects of the lockdown are finally wearing off enough to create a softer landing than our friends at the doom and gloom cloud are putting out. You know, a lot of the time when you think about risk, you probably associate it with people taking on too much uncertainty in a way that causes them to lose money. For instance, someone who jumped on uh, crypto or a meme stock and uh, hoping you would make him an overnight millionaire and instead, uh, let's just say they underperformed. But there's a risk to inaction too, and that's worth considering. You know, in, in the time when the markets fall, though it's easy to get anxious and forget. It can be tempting for some folks to panic and sell to try and avoid further losses without them recognizing that in all likelihood those losses would be later recouped. That's why a lot of investors fail, because they invest in investments which are more volatile than make sense for their own psychology and then respond to down markets poorly. Now think about this. Folks who panicked and sold when stocks dropped in 2020, when the bug hit, would have missed out on a bunch of subsequent gains as the markets rebounded. 
Currently, as you may have heard, the markets are down again, and if you panic and sell at lows, you could be out for some big losses in the future and basically cutting off your nose to spite your face in terms of recouping some of those gains. However, there is a tactical thing you might want to consider if you have a taxable account, a.k.a. not a retirement account, where you can look at some of these things that you bought and perhaps uh, and are down, and yet you think they're good companies just because their price changed, you know, so what? Uh, but you may want to take a, uh, sell them for tax loss purposes, meaning you can uh, use tax long-term capital losses against long-term capital gains dollar for dollar. And so that helps minimize your tax bill. You can also use $3,000 of those long-term losses against ordinary income. And you can carry forward those losses if you don't use them all in uh, this year into next year to help uh, cover other long-term gains. So you just uh, talk with your tax person and uh, see if that might make sense for you to do some of that because if you do sell it and you still like the company, you can buy it back in 31 days. Now, of course, the risk is it could be higher, lower, whatever, but you can buy it back in 31 days, still be able to take the loss for tax purposes and then have the position back in your account. Now, and that's kind of steely-eyed thinking. That's just objective you know, what am I going to do here? Yeah, because it's equally important to try and keep your emotions in check when you're invo- uh, when your things are going well, too. Don't get super attached to an investment that's gone up to the point where it might be time to sell and take some of those gains. These things don't know you own them, okay? They just don't. And just because it's gone up doesn't mean it's going to continue to gone up, uh, go up. Excuse me. How about Peloton? I... Uh, you know that that thing took off in the uh, pandemic when everybody was doing the exercise from home thing. Now they've uh, how might I say adjusted their share price. Uh, recent well, within the last couple of years, the stock has been one hundred and twenty one dollars a share. Uh, a few months ago, it was down to eight twenty two. It's now eleven and a half dollars a share which is somewhat less than 121. And their market cap has fallen from a peak of about 50 billion to under 4 billion. So, you know, they just don't get caught up in the hype, I guess is what I'm trying to suggest. The truth is that solid investing is supposed to be boring. A little speculation in moderation is fine. Say take 10% of your assets if you want to set fire to them uh, in whatever you want to do, but that doesn't change your lifestyle or your uh, cash flow significantly uh, if indeed they do underperform and it adds if it goes up. But just don't put it all that way. You know, it's exciting to watch when those things go up, but at some point they go down, Uh, you know, reversion to the mean, as they say, and you're going to be able to, not going to be able to guess uh, when that's going to happen. So you don't want that kind of excitement. Now, we know that uh, for many people, investing can be intimidating. No one listening today, of course. Uh, Especially the uh, prospect of losing money. Now, in the moments like today, when markets are broadly lower, the entire thing can feel pretty bad. But it's important to remember things in all likelihood aren't going to be like this forever. 
It's also a good moment to think about risk and uncertainty in investing a little, how you feel about it, and make sure some of your feelings are leading you to make, well, are not leading you to make decisions you'll later regret. See, because you have what's called realized gains and losses and unrealized gains and losses. So until and unless you actually sell something, they're all unrealized gains or losses. The realized means you sold it, up or down, it's just realized. And the realized ones are the things that you get taxed upon. Now, what's important about periods like this is if you've never been through it, it's going to teach you about risk-taking. And it's advice that might not make you feel better right now, but I can assure you that it's true. Now, I want to spend a few minutes on some retirement-related risks because uh, even if you're not retired right now, most people would like to think they're going to be able to be retired at some point. So uh, hopefully these uh, points can be of some benefit in your adjusting your planning today. And if you're already retired, well, you can make some adjustments as you're going along right now. You know, you, you cash your final paycheck, your investing goals now move to your new reality. You move from what we call accumulation. You're accumulating assets toward retirement, right? And this is now called decumulation, where you start taking them away. So, and you don't have anymore the single goal of building the nest egg. We got to hatch that bad boy and use it to uh, provide us some cash flow going down the road. Now, I believe you should have two goals with every retirement portfolio. One, protect the money you need in the short term from the markets, stock markets. And two, continue to grow your long-term wealth so inflation doesn't make you, how would I say, rue the day that you were too conservative. Now, how can you do both at the same time? And, and how do you withstand the whiplash of the market? Well... A lot of it is attitude, but thinking back, how did you react uh, during March of 2020? That can give you some pretty good insight into uh, your responses uh, under duress. Your level of angst, or lack thereof, the kind of worry, what you took uh, and by way of actions, all worth noting. And depending upon what you did, you can warrant an adjustment as to how you have allocated your assets today. Because how you react matters. During market downturns, you want to avoid pulling from your portfolio while stocks are in a drawdown. So, what you need to do is have a safer pool of funds, that could be cash, money market funds, or some very low-risk, low-duration bonds, that aren't as affected when stocks drop. And it allows you the time to wait out a bad market and so you don't have to sell a stock you love at a price you hate. That's never a good thing. That's called a cash carve-out strategy. Now, how much do you put in there? That is totally up to you. That is a personal decision. Uh, the uh, you know short end, three to six months. Long end, perhaps three years of uh, living expenses that you have set aside uh, to meet your needs so that you don't have to liquidate your portfolio. We're talking about uh, investing 
during retirement some of the things you might want to consider. Uh, and again, I would add that if you're not retired, great. Uh, these things still will apply and you can use them to, uh, if you will, plan ahead. Now, uh, back to the how much money do I keep for expenses? Uh, again, personal call. But look at your monthly expenses. Now, remember that some things you only pay once a year. So, but, you know, insurance, uh, taxes, whatever. Uh, but if you can, factor them into an average so you know what your average monthly outgo is. And then you can say, okay, based on that number and allowing for an inflation, and I would use 3% because 3% has been the inflation rate going, average inflation rate going back to 1926 in the U.S. So if you got to use a number, use that one. Um, it's not as high as it is now currently, but that's been the average. So it's a pretty good number uh, for reference purposes. So by doing that, it will give you the comfort that you don't have, you know, just because, as I said before the break, you know, you don't want to sell think stocks you like at prices you hate. So uh, this will preclude a lot of that happening because you've got a cash available pool and the markets will do what they do with the rest of your assets. You know, uh, since the Depression... The longest bear market we've had has been roughly 21 months. And so, you know, if that's the longest one, most of them have been much shorter. But extra cash gives you flexibility because you can pause, uh, you know, to cash it uh, in a few years to avoid selling at market bottoms. And you get invest, excuse me, aggressive and start reinvesting some of that when the you see things settling down a little bit and you want to start uh, picking at the lower prices. Once again, buy low is a good idea. And invest to grow your wealth. You know, many folks invest primarily in stocks and bonds when they aim to accumulate wealth. But historically, these two classes, as perhaps you are very well aware, have delivered vastly different returns and risk levels. If over over longer periods of time, stocks have outperformed bonds a bunch. The U.S. stock market, and this is as of the end of June this uh, 2021, the U.S. stock market has gone up 31 of the last 41 years. But they're also more volatile. In any single year, any single year, the U.S. market can swing from being up 30% or more to down nearly 50%. And that's usual and normal. And by the time the year's over, uh, some of that is not even noticeable. By protecting your short-term needs, again, keeping money in liquid assets, you may have the freedom to be a long-term-minded investor with the rest of your portfolio. These sudden drops would be less jarring. I mean, it's not going to, again... Oh my goodness, uh, you know, let's hold on that uh, furniture purchase or something. Uh, no, you can still do it if, you know, that's your inclination. And you can keep whatever your per personally desired amount of funds allocated toward assets you believe will give you to better returns and help you stay ahead of the inflation monster. Now, uh, in, a, in a brief that was published by the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, a gentleman named Wen Liang Hu, how? 
Well, forgive me, sir. But anyhow, that gentleman, he worked to quantify the magnitude of the risks that retirees face as well as their subjective perceptions of those risks and then compared the two. What he discovered is that there's a significant disconnect between actual and perceived risk by retirees. The biggest risk in the objective side is longevity. In other words, the risk of living longer than expected and setting fire to your resources, you know, the old, uh, which is going to expire first, me or my money? You don't want uh, the uh, latter to expire first. And again, uh, the longevity is followed by health risk and market risk. But at the top of the subjective ranking is market risk. And that reflects retirees' exaggerated assessments of market volatility. And I'm here to tell you that most folks really do not have a good idea as to volatility and its effects. And then uh, Mr. Hu re, uh, went on to say, the perceived longevity risk and health risk rank lower because retirees are pessimistic about their survival probabilities and they offer under, excuse me, often underestimate their health costs late in life, unquote. He went on to say, first, retirees do not have an accurate understanding of their true retirement risk. This finding that he wrote up uh, highlights the importance of educating the public on the most significant sources of risk. Now, learning what risk you'll face in retirement is certainly essential to building yourself a sound strategy to take you through retirement. Now, the folks at the Society of Actuaries say that there's 15 risks you might face in retirement. And by the way, you can go to their webpage and look this stuff up, Society of Actuaries, I think it was .com, uh, and they got a lot of interesting reports in there. But uh, some of the risks that they uh, see uh, in retirement, interest rates, uh, is your employer solvent? I presume that means if you're getting money from those folks. Post-employment retirement, changes in housing and your support needs, the death of your spouse or partner, divorce, separation, remarriage, all those things. You know, a good place to educate yourself about some of the risks you'll face is in this report that's on the SOA website. It's called Managing Post-Retirement Risks, Strategies for a Secure Retirement. And you can uh, go to their website and download it. It's, uh, it's about 30 pages, but it's easy to read. It had lots of pictures so I could relate to it. So uh, I would uh, recommend uh, just for your education, you might want to do that. No cost. And as you create your retirement strategy, you'll want to you know, consider what risk is relevant to you. How predictable is that risk? Uh, the probability of that risk actually occurring uh, and the consequences to you of the risk occurring and how you manage or reduce that risk. Given Mr. Hu's findings, you're going to have to need to address longevity first and foremost. Now, of course, if you knew your date of death, I would put that under the Dubious Achievement Award. But if you knew your date of death, this would be an easy risk to manage. But you don't know it. And that means you really don't know how long your money has to last. So, how to predict how long your money needs to last? You've got some options. Of course, none of them perfect. But uh, according to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, you can rely on the law of large numbers. If you're 65, 
you'll live an average of 18.1 more years if you're a male, 20.7 if you're female. But you don't want to really rely on those statistics because these are averages. Half would die before, half after. <laughs> which half are you in? You don't get a vote, by the way. Uh, but anyway, you know, which half are you in? So also the fact that half the U.S. population has misun excuse me, misestimated their life expectancy by at least five years, either too high or low. And this, again, according to the Society of Actuaries, the consequences of guessing either too high or low are pretty severe. If you underestimate your life expectancy, you're going to face a greater risk of outliving your assets and having financial stress, uh, putting it mildly. And those who overestimate may not be able to prepare properly for the care of uh, financial dependence in the future in the event of their death. Second, another way you could uh, figure this out is to use probabilities to get a sense of how long you might live. Now, according to J.P. Morgan Asset Management's 2022 Guide to Retirement, if, there, if you're a 65-year-old couple, there's an 89% chance that at least one of you will live to 85. 72% one will live to 90. 44% chance that one lives to 95. And 18% that one lives to 100. You know, the correction we've been going through this year has been tough for a lot of folks, and that's understandable. Uh, again, uh, most people have little or no experience with these kinds of, uh, I don't care if you're an individual investor or a trader or what, but if you haven't been actively involved in the markets m much before 2000, uh, you don't have any real uh, familiarity with uh, flipping and flopping about interest rates and inflation rates. Now that's neither here nor there, but it is just the fact worth considering. Uh, we're talking about uh, ways you can well, help predict how long your money will last in retirement. And uh, another option I wanted to share with you are these uh, online calculators. Um, there's three that I'm aware of. One's called, uh, and they're all free, uh, Actuaries Longevity Illustrator. That's one. Living to 100. That's another. And then the third is the Longevity Game, a Lifespan Calculator. So that's Actuaries Longevity Illustrator, Living to 100, or the Longevity Game, a Lifespan Calculator. They give you a much better sense of your personal life expectancy, but, you know, there's always a chance you're going to check out uh, uh, later or sooner than what's predicted. But anyway, just for more data to help make you some informed decisions. And then a, a, a final option uh, would be simply just use age 100 for your planning horizon, you know, just down and dirty. You run the risk of dying sooner than 100, but the odds of living much longer are pretty dang small. So in the worst case, your surviving spouse and other beneficiaries might be able to benefit from those unused assets. You know, and other things in, to consider in re, your retirement planning, and again, whether you're retired now or will be, these these uh, facts all apply. Yeah, uh, 16% only, 16% of Americans named increasing their retirement savings as a top priority. 27% named traveling to a new destination, and 23% that was uh, weight loss is their primary goals. Uh, that's Capital One Investing Financial Freedom Study. You know, uh, 
people spend more time planning a two-week vacation than a 20-year retirement, and that's regardless of income, age, what have you. And we have the privilege of working with many of our clients prior to and during retirements, and uh, these are some of the things we've learned, uh, well, we knew, or we learned through them. Number one, learning that Medicare will not pay for all your health care expenses. Uh, once you're eligible at 65, uh, it certainly makes things a little easier. It can help lower your out-of-pocket spending on many health care expenses. But, for example, long-term care, which is perhaps your, one of your biggest health uh, care expenses and potential risk, uh, is not in any way, shape, or form covered by Medicare. So you need to have a plan in place for these costs. And in addition, you'll have to have uh, premiums and deductibles for all your regular care, as well as if you opt for a Medicare supplement policy. So, you know, just kind of keep those things in mind. And you can do long-term care insurance policies. There are also hybrid annuities, where you put money into an annuity that is ineffectively reserved for um, use with long-term care. And it's a a multiple of, say, you put in X number of dollars and you get about anywhere from three to five times the amount of your deposit in terms of um, health care benefits. So uh, just talk with your advisor about those to get the uh, details. The thing about long-term care insurance is it's a use it or lose it. I mean, you keep putting money into it. If you don't use it, money's gone. If uh, you use the annuity, uh, you'll still have an annuity if you pass away or you and your spouse pass away without having to use it. It's there for your heirs. So just a consideration. Another point is you'll likely still need money invested in the market. Oh, for sure. You know, and this is kind of a brain cramp for a lot of folks to say, oh, I have to be conservative when I'm retired. Yeah, well, bologna sausage. You know, if you had been uh, conservative these past 10 years, I'm not sure that you would have stayed ahead of inflation, even at its lower rate. You know, depending upon how early you choose to retire, uh, it's, you know, most retirements today are lasting 20 years or even longer. And in my experience, to keep up with inflation and improve the likelihood of you maintaining your standard of living, you have to have some exposure to growth. I mean, that's it. It's just math. Uh, And keeping or placing a portion of your assets into uh, the stock market, whether through mutual funds or ETFs or individual positions, doesn't matter. But you got to have that exposure. You know, it's a very real possibility, as we're seeing, that investors uh, may have to suffer through very long periods of minimal, even negative returns. But over 20 years... Any 20-year period in the U.S., stocks have never lost money. And you can look that up. I'm not just saying that stuff. And uh, uh, a recent piece from uh, the WF Investment Institute said, and I'm quoting, Today, despite the relatively moderate, modest inflation uh, from 1985 through the uh, end of 21, you need more than twice the number of dollars you would have needed to buy the same amount of goods that you could in 1985. You know, and that again, that's only based on a 3% average jump, as I mentioned. Uh, so when you have higher rates of inflation as we're dealing with now, well, you can do the math too. Now, you can also do something called the rule of 72 to determine how long it's going to take something to, to double. What you do is take the inflation rate, whatever inflation rate, and divide it into 72. 
So if you do 3%, make it easy on me. 3%, the answer is 24. That means that having a 3% inflation rate over the period will take 24 years for something to double. Now, if you've got a 9% inflation rate, it'll take eight years for something to double in cost. Significant difference. So you can determine how long, using the same math, uh, at an annual rate, it'll take an asset to double in uh, value. Uh, if you take uh, the 10-year treasury at about 1.8 uh, and uh, say now a good corporate bond about 3% um, and you divide each of those returns into 72, the corporate bond will take about 24 years like inflation because it's 3%. On the other hand, the treasury note would take 38 and a half years to double. So uh, that's why you don't put everything in those bond deals. So, again, if you keep everything, if inflation is only 3%, your, your costs are double in 24 years. Doesn't sound like soon, but it does add up. And as we alluded to earlier, transitioning from being a saver to a spender can be harder than you think. You know, watching your account balances swing as you draw down your service, excuse me, savings as opposed to continuing to grow when you are working can make some folks feel guilty about spending. Uh, but it's okay to spend down your savings. That's what it's there for. Uh, I'm not talking about being profligate. I'm just saying, you know, if that's what it's there for, is to spend to support your lifestyle. And no matter how much you plan, retirement is always going to find a way to surprise you. We know that. Sure, that's one of those facts of life. So to help mitigate the effect of inflation on your retirement savings, save more than you think you'll need, but... Don't be too conservative in your investments. Again, except for that pool of money you need for emergencies, whether it's three months or three years, um, those have to be very conservative. And don't be afraid to stick with mostly stocks. Despite the volatility and the losses that occur potentially from time to time, as I said, over 20 years you haven't lost money, and we're talking that's the length of time for retirement. So, there you are. And... Uh, you know, in those times when the markets fall, it's easy to get anxious and tempting to panic and then selling to try and avoid further losses without recognizing that, in all likelihood, those losses will likely be recouped. You know, the, it, a lot of investors fail because they put money into certain investments which are more volatile and make sense for their personal psychology and then respond to down markets poorly, a.k.a. they get out. You know, if a person panicked and sold when things dropped in early 2020, as we said earlier, they would have missed out on a bunch of significant gains. Investing is supposed to be boring. A little speculation is fine, but let's not get carried away with it. Keep your investment emotions in check again when the things are going well as, to, uh, as well. So that's it for this week's broadcast. We'll be back next week with more market news. I hope you found this helpful and informative. I thank you very much for listening. My name is, <clears throat> excuse me, my name is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Opus 111 Group, and you've been listening to Money Management. See you next Saturday. Join us again next Saturday morning at the same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com. Okay.